GM needs to do a better job of cultivating creative out of out of the box thinkers in house. So when they have a situation like they have a cruise now, they can put them somewhere they can apply that type of approach. Because um, putting you know com- uh, leadership by committee and bean counting is not going to save cruise, and cruise is totally savable. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, formerly with Argo AI, currently the principal at Johnson & Roy uh, Transportation Consultants, and I'm feeling like Nostradamus the last two weeks. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, and... Wow, uh, there's been a lot happening, I guess, more in the tech world broadly. Um, we will not be wasting your time <laughs> with open AI takes here today uh, because it, it's actually, it's been really interesting. You know, open AI has like sucked up all this, this oxygen in tech because it's the big company in the big trend, which is AI. Somehow, Cruise, which is one of the biggest companies in AVs, doesn't like the the distinction between AVs and this AI bubble is kind of or AI trend is kind of interesting that that they're not seen as the same thing because AI is pretty important to AVs too. And in the world of AVs, uh, there's been some very big news uh, on a topic that we've been discussing here a bit lately, which is the situation at Cruise. And Kirsten, as always, has been on top of the latest reporting. Kirsten, take us inside the uh, Kyle Vogt Cruise situation. What what happened? What's going on now? Yeah. Well, my first insight is is that if this had all gone down, let's say in circa 2018, 2019, it would have been the biggest story at the time because AVs was so hypey at that time. Whereas right now AI is and particularly open AI. So it's kind of interesting for me to watch so much effort go into um, and time and resources go into um, open AI coverage. And thinking back to the days when AVs got all the all the top headlines. Um, so what really happened is obviously Cruise has been spiraling for a while. Things really got away from them. You know, I would say right after the October 2nd incident, specifically around that video and the DMV coming out about um, that they did not, uh, their contention is that it, the video was uh, cut. Um, Cruz still maintains that no, it wasn't, but they just didn't explain it well enough and it was bad communication. But at, at any rate, it doesn't really matter because that was the beginning, I think, of when they started really losing support. Um, things started stacking up and I think they lost control of the situation inside the company from my, my sources and then, of course, externally too. Support really receded. Um, and so then it culminated to last week when a very important thing happened in which I got more sources reaching out to me than I've ever had before from Cruise, which was the suspension of the tender offer on their shares. So the way the shares work is Cruise is not publicly traded, GM is, but this is a special share program and a third party evaluates and places a value on these shares once a quarter. And then employee that is that is that valuation and that was suspended and then people freaked out because some had were counting on that money and some had tax obligations based on the holdings that they had so they were going to be pulling you know it was really going to impact a lot of people saturday comes around and kyle issues a, an email uh, internal email apologizing retracting reversing we will i i, I 
take full responsibility. There is this quote that's been circulating around, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat it. And then Sunday morning, I get a couple people who are pretty high up in the, you know, within that world. And we're like, uh, Kyle's leaving, Kyle's exiting. But it didn't feel substantial enough to me, but we started doing a little reporting. And then lo and behold, Sunday night, the internal email goes out and Kyle has resigned. And, and in my coverage, and, and then later, um, a couple other, um, like Reuters and others were pretty fast followers. I think the leaks are like happening fast and loose at this point. Um, there were two emails, one from Kyle, one from Mary, completely a different structure now, elevating some people within crews and importantly, inserting some big time GM people, um, John McNeil being the primary person I'm paying the most attention to, um, into cruise leadership and Kyle basically resigning. So that's the sort of headline stuff that what's happening inside the company is extremely low morale. And actually a lot of people who were supporters of Kyle saying, I think this is probably the thing that had to happen though. So the today, today and yesterday, I'm hearing a little bit more like maybe this can all turn around on Sunday and Monday was like what, and last week especially was was very low morale. That tender offer pissed a lot of people off. That's a lot, a lot going on there. So Alex, you're the only one of us who's worked inside of a full stack company. Uh, give us some perspective on this. <laughs> I mean, obviously this is really different than what you experienced at Argo. Uh, but you know, the issue with with stock is something I think in a lot of these companies that's a, a big issue. Um, since they haven't been able to get the IPO. Well, um, you know. Argo, we we never reached a stage where there were like you know um, secondary sales. Um, the there were there was talk of it, um, but that was theoretical. I, I mean, the only the closest we came was, uh, I mean, people at one point were talking about what would happen if Argo uh, got acquired, like at the very end, and what would happen to leadership. The, I mean. From, from what I know, the overwhelming majority of people were loyal to the Brian Seleski, Pete Rander, Britt Browning unit. And I'm one of them. Like if if they had been removed or replaced for any reason, I would have left. Because I, I – and I think this is true of Cruz. Uh, it's probably cr- true of Motional too. Um, Waymo, maybe less so. But probably still Waymo. There's the, the number – you could count on two hands the number of people. Uh, who have the technical expertise, charisma, and like leadership, like ability to build and scale a co- the kind of companies we're talking about, and that the bench of people have done it in transportation is almost doesn't exist. I mean, unless you come someone from FedEx or like UPS or something like that, or aviation maybe, but the, but but to have that knowledge. And the knowledge, engineering knowledge of autonomy, it's just, there is nobody to go to. There's just the people who came out of DARPA and they're, that bench is just not deep. So how do you replace a Kyle? I mean, you can, um, but they're not going to command the loyalty, the personal loyalty of engineers. And they're unlikely to have the engineering knowledge. So what do you do? Like, what, where do you go? So Waymo got around this by 
um, in the uh, post craft chick having, you know, two CEOs, both of whom command, you know, respect and cover different areas because they just couldn't find one person who had it all. And, you know, I, I, I believe in the single CEO um, or at the very least a very, a very strong, you know, senior leadership team. Um, Waymo seems to have threaded the needle here, which I don't think a lot of people know if they could. But, you know, Dimitri Golgoff, the people respect him. Like competitors would be like, yep, Dimitri, guy's good. Well, you need you need engineers to respect your CEO and because the the talent fight, the fight for talent, which we're seeing play out in AI, mm. is also mm. a very real thing in AVs, which is by the way, <laughs> AI is involved. There's a you know, you need yeah. machine learning folks for sure. And that's why it's so funny, Ed, to your point before, that there you don't see that many parallels, but there's absolutely a huge overlap. The, t- the fight for talent's real. And if you don't have a CEO that commands respect, like people want to work for that person. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if there's a fallout that happens of people leaving Cruise. I think right now some people are le- probably going to leave Cruise because they're anticipating layoffs or maybe they're going to wait for their incentive package and play that game. They're going to wait. Yeah, they'll wait. They're going to wait. Because we're, unless you're a star, where do you go today? Where do you go? Um, I mean, Seleski's hiring. <laughs> he loves that hiring the best, but not a lot of their folks have raised fresh money recently who are hiring at, I mean, Cruz member, I don't know if Kirsten, I'm sure you remember like two, two and a half years ago, they announced like they were hiring like a thousand more people. Two, I, remember yeah, 2000 sitting, engineers. 2000, I remember sitting with uh, Brian and the guys, and like, where are they going to find that many awesome people? hard to find that many awesome people you could find a few dozen amazing people but everybody awesome i don't know so i don't think anyone is going to leave cruise unless they're a superstar hard but poached by someone else but the majority of folks are going to stay and see how it plays out like when because gm let's suppose that gm wants to you know reduce headcount and cost at cruise there's going to be a fight between who gets the best people? Are they going to be made even better offers at GM? Uh, or are they going to just jump ship entirely? So I don't think it, there's going to be mass departures. No well, way. Well, so here's here's the big question. And it, the timing of this was like just hilarious to me. Was just just days before the resignation, GM – uh, absorbed right yeah <laughs> took their their startup i'm doing quote air quotes their their startup or independent unit bright drop which is the commercial ev unit that had been a wholly wholly owned subsidiary and by the way when that first launched it was all about how we're creating a startup culture it's going to move fast this is not and now they've they've absorbed that and it's no longer a wholly owned subsidiary the head of bright drop is out and it's now within the company. And, you know, Cruise is also a wholly owned subsidiary. And I, I there's that's one, so that's one possibility. Does GM just absorb it? That is a risk because I do think that you would lose people. Um, <clears throat> however, if the whole tender offer thing, share program is not attractive anymore, I don't know if it matters. The well, other option is they, they insert GM. Yeah. Well, no, there's, I mean, there's a lot of AI startups, there's crossover. And then there is put your GM people in there and create stability. (laughs) And I think that's why John McNeil is the most important character in all this. Um, 
my money, I'll make a bet, is in 2024, if not sooner, but in 2024, he ends up being CEO because importantly, they have not named an interim CEO at all. Mm. Yeah. So actually, I want to just just I'm going to read from your uh, your piece at TechCrunch really quick, just so people understand, because the situation is very feels very ad hoc at the leadership level. So you have uh, Mo Aishinawi, who was the EVP of engineering at Cruise. He'll be the president and CTO. Craig Glidden was the EVP for legal and policy, and he is now something called the chief administrative officer at Cruise. Then John McNeil is now the vice chairman. Uh, and so it, it looks like we've got like sort of you know management by uh, by committee here, which it feels like. I hope this is a temporary situation because I think uh, uh, Alex brought up a good point. I think that the AV sector and and sort of to you, your guys' discussion earlier, like leadership has to do a lot of things. And as Alex said, there's very few single people who can both inspire and lead the end the hardcore engineering talent that you need, um, while also sort of you know can be safe and like. To, you know, take your time and be patient, right? These are a lot of, it's not just like balancing skill sets, balancing appeal, balancing leadership, but also even balancing temperament. I think you need at the top of these companies, someone who's willing to push and someone who's willing to hold back a little bit. And I think you see that at some of the companies that are doing, that are doing well. This doesn't feel like a well-engineered leadership team yet. Maybe it will, you know, I, I assume they want to evolve towards that. Um, but I think that maybe that will be the norm going forward in the space instead of like the typical founder type of guy that, that you see in other startups. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Kirsten. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, right now it feels like the parents are, have arrived. Um, and, and, you know, that's not to take anything away. If there are cruise people have been elevated in this shuffling, so I should be clear, but right now it has that sensibility because there is no actual CEO. And I think that, um, I think someone like John can command that presence, but we'll see if there's some other rising star within the engineers or something who really like. I did want to mention one other faction that's percolating within inside Cruise, which is the pro Dan Ammon people. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge there's a decent group of people, and I don't have an exact count because I haven't talked to enough people, right, to get a real good read who believe that Dan was right all along and that they should have IPO'd. Now, of course, 2020 hindsight because the markets obviously went into the crapper, but his whole directive was to IPO. And he believed, this is based on internal sources, that GM was never going to have the money required to actually reach the milestones they needed because it was going to take longer than they realized. And that's what his line of thinking was. And so an IPO would allow them to do that. Now, obviously that hasn't worked out great for some companies, right? Who have done that, but had they done a traditional IPO, that was his whole mission. And there are people who believe that they should have done that. And that when he left, which depending on who you talk to was very much a kind of a political type thing that was happening um, based on his contract and, and how it was all about the IPO. And when they didn't do the IPO, that kind of went to that went sideways and then he was pushed out. Um, but there are a lot, there are a number of cruise engineers who really actually liked him. They had like funny jokes about like him and there was a rapport and he was also very aggressive, but understood that it was going to take a long time to do it and they needed the money to do it. So, and, and I've had it described as Dan and Kyle had like a, and I don't know if this is accurate because I haven't heard from Kyle directly, right. Or Dan, but like a big brother 
type of relationship. There was, it was like a pretty decent one. So there's been criticisms of Dan Ammon, but at the same time, I hear still people today, and he left a couple, a few years ago, of supporters of him. So, so there, I don't know what happens to those people. Right? He was and absolutely the- right about the timelines and additional costs. Absolutely right. And nobody wanted to hear it. And here we are. Isn't it amazing how many leaders tell the truth? It's not many and then get punished for it. <laughs> so this is the, the subtext though, to all of this is, is right. Is Cruz like, does it, is it, is is an asset that makes sense as part of GM or is it an asset that ultimately GM needs to divest from like over the long run? And I think the bright drop is a really interesting counterexample. So like it, with the bright drop thing, like it was kind of spuriously a startup, you know, at, at all, right? Like Cruise existed kind of independently of GM before GM bought it. Then of course, once GM bought it, it was still sort of essentially a, a wholly owned subsidiary. Uh, these distinctions are, are pretty arbitrary, but the reason GM rolled bright drop back in was twofold. One, obviously, clearly they don't think that there's a near-term market for the IPO. Um, And I think that that's reasonable. But the bigger issue was they they wanted to roll in their commercial – they want to consolidate their commercial business basically. They wanted commercial vehicle customers to have one point of contact at GM to handle like any of the their product offerings, which is something that Ford is is doing really well with, with Ford Pro, right? Like that that's become a very profitable part of that business and GM I think is trying to replicate that. So in other words, there was like an actual argument for bringing Bright Drop into GM, like a, a here and now business argument. That doesn't exist sure. with Cruise. You don't have that – like. There's like the, the best case scenario for that is like, well, maybe we can use these engineers on ADAS essentially. And I think there's some overlap there, but but not a ton. And I think at that point, why do you why keep having the name Cruise? Why keep having the branding? Whatever. I think that that the, that's the real choice that GM is facing here is is there a world two years out from from now where we can or one year or, or three years, probably not much more than three years, where we can you know. Invest up to that point in you know in a, a, a more constrained way, but then get to an IPO where we can then spin this out. And I think that as long as as Cruise is, is treated as an independent organization, that's always going to be the goal. Because frankly, like I think one of the lessons we've all learned is that level four companies don't fit that well with the with the auto OEM business. They're kind of a, a tough a tough mix. <laughs> yeah, and then the the publicly traded stuff is difficult because on the one hand. Uh, particularly right now where there's not a lot of free money out there because of interest rates, um, that these are pre-revenue companies, right? Um, and I know there was a, t- there was a moment there that Cruz was right on the cusp of, of actually making, you know, decent revenue, but obviously the costs far outpaced any, it, they weren't like going to be profitable or anything close, but at least they had like the beginnings of, of revenue and one could argue, okay, but that's very hard to, to, to maintain shareholder loyalty um, with the exception of like a Tesla where there is just like they're drinking buckets of Kool-Aid and still continue to believe in a future in certain future. But Tesla always had the car business to fall back on while they pushed the futuristic side of things that pushed their market share up um, or, or I'm sorry, their, their market cap up. But with Cruise or any other AV company that's publicly traded, it's a really difficult business because you have there. What do you? What revenue do you have? You're not even close to profitability, and that only works for so long unless you have an extremely loyal shareholder base. The other issue is is that if they had spun out as IPO, 
then what does that do to GM stock? Because one part of GM stock is it's, you know, cruise is part of that. This is the future. And a uh, 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 should not be d- downplayed. It was a big part of Mary's legacy that she was trying to build for herself. And, and that's hugely important that I think people need to understand. A lot of people have asked me, well, do you think they'll just kill it like Ford basically pulling out of Argo? And I'm like, that's totally possible. But I think Mary Barrow has had wants to build her legacy. And a part of it's been about EVs and software, but a lot of it hasn't worked out. Maven hasn't worked out. Some of this like incubator startup stuff hasn't totally worked out. The EV thing is tougher than maybe anticipated. So Cruise was a big, big expensive bet that I think that she's going to do everything she can to make it work. It just, what does that look like? And does it just get completely jacked up in the process of trying to make it work and help it survive? A lot to digest. Um I mean, let me throw another wrench in the works here. I, look, I want Cruise to survive. I do. I think the industry is healthier if they do. Competition is good. However, uh, they made a a bet that was the opposite of Argo. Like they designed from the ground up a purpose-built vehicle. It's expensive. And even if their software worked perfectly, perfectly, they still have the – they have this production line, these origins – in you know, Argo made the opposite bet, and uh, I'm not saying it was better. Argo was like, let's roll the vehicles that you know coming already coming off the assembly line. Ford escapes. Mm, they they had Ford escapes, and so uh, this debate over what Mera is going to do, a lot of it, I think, I think a big thing they have to decide is like, do they want to eat the cost of <laughs> this cruise, this origin assembly line for however many years? <laughs> before the math starts to make sense. This is a problem Waymo doesn't have. They don't have this, they don't have a purpose-built production line because you're not doing anything with origins other than giving this, using them for crews. But doesn't Waymo kind of have the same problem though? Because they like, they're working with Zeker. They were working with what is now Stellantis. But like the Jaguar I-Pace is a super old platform. And by the way, you cannot fit like, five people comfortably in that or f- whatever they say that you can fit in that vehicle. Cause I tried it. It's very tight. So like they kind of have, they have a different problem, but like they do have that, that vehicle problem too. I feel like that's going to come to a head eventually. It depends on how they structure the deal with Zeker though. Right. Cause like it's if- always cheaper to use something coming off an assembly line. That's building stuff that other people can buy than yeah. it is for a purposeful vehicle. The Zeker it represents for the foreseeable future, a minority of of the Waymo fleet, right? So, so if if Zeker, like if if Waymo's deal with Zeker require like obligates them to buy X number, then right, like if they have a fixed cost commitment that no matter what they have to, if they're just that's one thing, right? Then that gets them closer to that like having your own assembly line kind of issue. But if they're just if it's just a customer deal, if they just you know we just agree on a price and we buy what we want and like they have some some flexibility and optionality in that then then it is a totally different thing and 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 yeah like it, it, especially you know uh like Zeker can sell different versions of that vehicle to different customers. They they there's the you know sort of autonomous version but then there's even I think there's going to be sort of human driven versions of that that architecture obviously won't be the same. It won't have the same doors and it won't have the same interior and things like that. But like they have ways of getting efficiencies of scale 
Whereas for GM, yeah. it's, it's, it's just more, it's a few more bolts that cost a lot more money to, right? Like they have a lot of training. They got, it's just like a lot to do to do that all in house. So I think, I think it, Alex is right. I mean, I think Waymo, like that customer approach versus doing it all in house, it, it de-risks the investment. Mm, but, but also here's my pushback on it though. It takes years of validation to get like a brand new, you know, custom built like a origin, fully validated and going through the production cycle and stuff like that. And so while that might play out perfectly with Waymo and Zeker, it still feels like I just don't have insight into how far along they are in that that process. Because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, this this minivan thing we can sell to other customers. Yeah, that might work great. But this is an autonomous vehicle with different redundancies in it. And so you have to test that on the public roads, like before you can commercially roll it out. Like I'm just not seeing that level of activity yet. Like with, you know, so it, that's going to take a couple of years, right. To like fully vet it, validate it, verify it, test it in public roads in different environments and cities, and then roll it out. In the meantime, you've got the Jaguar I-Pace, which again is an older platform. It's not a bad platform. It's just an older platform. So like, to me, the timing is a little bit, not scary, but like, I wonder what's going on in the background with Waymo too. Like, I just don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk. And granted, I don't have, I'm not sitting at in the boardroom. They probably, I, like, I have no idea how far progressed the Zika program is with, with Waymo. Let me agree with everything you said. Um, we don't, I don't have enough information either, but just think for a second about like, let's imagine everyone's software worked perfectly today. I mean, Cruise, Waymo, Argo's still here, Argo's software, software works, okay? Then your next issue is, like, what what is the, what vehicles are in fleet and what revenues they generate? You need to be doing pickups and drops between high demand, um, high revenue locations. It's always going to be airport and downtown, always going to be. You need a vehicle that can accomplish that. And so, you know, when Uber started, it was just black cars and Lyft started with cheaper cars. Now, all ride hail platforms operate a vehicle in every price and size band. So look at, you know, thinking about where uh, Waymo is today. I mean, literally today, uh, they shut down the Pacificas. They've got I-Paces, which could serve as kind of like, um, what is it, like Waymo VIP or like an upper level band, even if they are older, it doesn't matter. They're immaculate. And then they slot in this Zeker thing, which is more space. And as long as these vehicles, we know that the I-Pace can do airport pickup and drop. Uh, I've seen them on the highway all the time. I don't think it's going to be long for Waymo Pulse drivers, uh, safety operators. They're going to have two vehicles in fleet, which both fill very specific needs. And there is demand for both these vehicles in band uh, at price points people like. If Cruise's software worked today, today, uh, their primary market, San Francisco, is an unfriendly one. It's not – I mean I've never – I'm not aware that Origins are rolling out on highway speeds. And even if they were, I'm not sure that the community wants them there. How do they go back? How do they go back? So you have – they have very – I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I actually – if they get to a point where they start – you know, right now operations is done, right? I think layoffs is going to 100% really nail that. Um, I mean we've already seen that happen with contract workers – but let's say they do go back. We wrote a story um, that one of one of our reporters, Rebecca Bellin, did looking at Texas, and um, 
that's a really interesting market. There's already been, you know, well-documented um, activity there with self-driving vehicles, very, you know, pro-AV, pro-business, anti-regulation state. Um, and it's certainly interesting for the trucking world. And I think that that will be one of the first markets they go back to if they do. Um, and cities are pretty powerless, which we get into in the story, uh, due to some stuff that happened during the ride-hailing era. Although, interestingly, cities have one weapon, which is fascinating, that California doesn't, which is in California, unless there's a driver, a human being in a vehicle, you cannot issue a ticket. But in Texas, you can. So cities could feasibly just ticket the hell out of like, you know, any robotaxi operator that is a bad actor, but they have zero power due to the state legislature and how they've, you know, basically created regulation there to really do anything else. I, um, I, would, I would argue though that in San Francisco, you, they could be, the software could function today and they would be vandalized and messed with at such a high rate that it would make deployment in the current climate, almost impossible. I would also add that that it is unbelievable that we have not seen when Argo left Miami, anyone roll it and just take it because Miami is way more attractive than uh, Austin as a market because you do not. Cruz was about to, I should note it. I should note in one of my stories, the day after they got suspended from DMV and everything was getting crazy. The following day, internally, and I had this verified by a couple of sources, they launched two vehicles driverless on the streets of Miami. Um, it's an internal, you know, an internal okay. There's no regulation that says you have to get a permit or whatever in Florida. Um, and and then of course, then just hours later, you know, the following day, they they internally and voluntarily paused all operations. So that was done. But they seemed poised to do that. I think that that was going to be certainly one of their markets that they were looking at. So I'm going to say yes, but let me tell you about the failure of imagination and forward planning at Cruise. Okay, When Argo shut down, I was good friends with the, the large operations team that was there, fantastic people there. Um, Cruise, instead of immediately rolling in trying to po- you know, grab them to keep them on the ground in a city they know and basically just carry on the Argo operations, team, leadership, structure, whatever, if not the real estate too, which is perfectly situated, uh, those people dispersed and Cruise hired some of them and moved them to Phoenix. So basically not taking advantage at all of the people on the ground who would have been perfect, pre-trained to work in Miami. Second – um, the political and community the community engagement happening in um, in Miami on the ground, of which I was a key person, and the uh, political lobbying efforts um, all basically just went fallow after Argo shut down. Nobody walked in and like said, "Hey, we'd like to talk to you." I mean, literally, it was like the VIP list of perfect allies on the ground. So, Cruz, yes, two vehicles down there. But it wasn't like they, they weren't clearly looking at Argo's shutdown and saying, let's exploit this. They let that just go away and starting from what I can see from scratch, which is – it's just failure imagination. There is no subculture in Miami opposing this. There's no cone groups. There's no people in the streets trying to stop it. And so what a profound 
piece of short-sightedness. Honestly, in addition to the policy and comms people that have to go at Cruise, whoever is like, so, I don't know who's running strategy. I know at least one person in strategy there who's good. I don't know the others. But again, there's, I, I don't know if they were ordered not to think imaginatively or they just failed to. But there is, there's a shorter path to success than Cruise took. They need to take that path. I mean, I, I think like I think you you bring up a really good point, Alex. I think that Kyle Vogt could, for better or for worse, and like I I was on the record pretty early saying that I thought he needed to go, and 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 he's gone. I do think that that was the right choice, and I think it's an interesting. You know, we've been talking about a lot of different things here, and I think that a lot of the things we've been saying show what a big decision it was for him to get. I assume forced out. I, I assume this was not entirely voluntary. Um, well, Obviously it's being uh, framed as source, a voluntary thing. Well, it's being framed as a voluntary thing, but uh, from what I'm hearing so far, everything supports that this was his decision. Now, whether he saw was reading the tea leaves and was expecting it and wanted to get out ahead of it, I will say this uh, about Kyle. All the times I've interviewed him and things like that, like he's a true believer. And I do think that there might have been, and again, this is my speculation based on talking to a human being numerous times, that maybe he thought that that falling on his sword now would save the company because he does truly like believe in it, right? Like there are other people who have run other companies. They would just, you know, they they don't think the way he does. And this isn't necessarily a positive, by the way, is just the way I, I'm just saying like how he is. He might have been reading the tea leaves. The Quinn Emanuel report had not even come out yet, which may have shown uh, come to a different conclusion, or it may have may have said, "Yeah, Kyle's got to go." Um, I have a feeling GM would have liked to have been in control of that, and uh, he took that control away from them um, by by resigning it, it, the way he did. So it might have been, "I'm going to control this, and I'm going to try and save Cruz." We'll see if that happens. And again, this is my my just gut from talking to him on numerous occasions. Do you yeah, want to make so, any predictions? Well, I just I just want to say, I mean, I think I think one of the lessons that were coming that's coming out of this is is for me is you know San Francisco was a really bad place actually for early deployments. Like I think Waymo has done it right. They've although they there was just a New York Times story about them delaying emergency response vehicles. I don't know in the in the rides that I took, I saw two emergency response vehicle interactions in the Waymo rides I had in San Francisco and and. It, the Waymo was better than any of the humans on the road uh, in terms of identifying and responding to it. So, uh, I, but the but the point is, is that you know I think Waymo shows what everyone was trying to accomplish, which is right, like not having too many really terrible instances. They were safe. They were they were careful and cautious, doing it the right way. And they have this incredible experience now that you can go and ride during the day in San Francisco in this crazy place, and nothing can convince people that this technology is real better than a ride. And like, that was, that was what was to be gained. And it's right there in the middle of, you know, the whole Silicon Valley ecosystem. And it's like the, but like, I think Cruz shows what the risks were and the risks were that as Alex was saying, there was this whole, you know, uh, ongoing political simmering issue in the, in the Valley around Silicon Valley and, and its role in that sort of broader community. And AVs became this like flashpoint for it. And I think that that at this point, Cruz, it's not just that what Cruz did was like Cruz made so many mistakes. They did. They made a lot of mistakes. But it was also that they were operating in a very unforgiving environment. And I think that their brand is just done in San Francisco. I don't I I don't know how Cruz gets back on the road 
there. Certainly not for their, you know, come their comeback. I don't think is going to be in San Francisco. Um, if it is, then then Kyle absolutely had to go because they're going to have to do so much work to rebuild trust. And there was right. I don't think any way yeah. that he was going to be able to do that. The last thing I wanted to say, maybe as we wrap this up, because I know we're running low on time, is I think the point about Mary Barra is really interesting for me because GM under under Mary Barra has obviously she's very different leader stylistically than Elon Musk, but I think she has of all of the the sort of established legacy automakers most sort of tried to play the Elon Musk game in terms of stock market valuation, in terms of making these big investments uh, into these things. And, and, and Kirsten, as you point out, none of those things are looking that great right now. I mean, Ultium, it's still early. They're big EV, uh, uh, you know, architecture, but like the, the Hummer is not looking good. It, it It's looking very much like the GM of old, which is they know they need to, 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 to do things to stay, you know, to move with the times, but they do it in such a scattershot and distracted way that like none of it actually builds anything, you know, t- towards anything real. And so I think that, you know, she's at a make or break moment for her, her leadership of GM. And I'm, I just don't know what she pulls out in the next couple of years to make that all look the way it kind of needs to look for her to come out looking good, you know? Yeah, I mean, these things do take time and, you know, like you do have to play the long game and I can look back and be like, oh, terrible move. And then I'm like, well, I guess I was wrong about that one. So we'll have to see. There was a lot of like experimental throwing crap at the wall to see if it sticks that every automaker was doing in like the 2017, 2018 era of things, maybe 2016, Um, you know, back when like, you know, Ford, for instance, was doing like, let's do leasing that you can share with your friends. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, or like Maven? buying Maven? Chariot. Yeah. yeah or yeah, Jams, yeah. Maven. All that stuff. Did it felt very experimental. But it's interesting that you say it feels like GM of old because the thing that is most interesting to me, kind of more on the EV side of things, so it's getting a little far afield, is – it's not – I don't understand why they did the GMC like Hummer. I've talked to people who have given me their theories. But to me, the big misstep has been the order in which they went with certain vehicles over others, meaning a big push and play on all these extremely expensive, huge, very niche, really quite honestly, very niche vehicles, when instead actually – um perhaps they should have done stuff like go with the Equinox and the Blazer right away and skip the freaking Hummer thing. Like they were going after all these flagships and I've seen other companies do this as well. That is, is meant to elevate the brand and be aspirational, but I don't think that that worked. Um, So it's not like I necessarily think the, like the, portfolio super scattershot, although it does feel like that it's almost in which the order in which that it went out. Um, had they stuck to a the better Chevy Bolt or built off of that or did a the Equinox or the EV Blazer first? I don't. I think maybe it would have played out a little differently. Um, that has nothing to do with AVs, but it kind of it, it it goes to your point of kind of it feeling like the old when GM had all these brands and was like just going after everything, and like instead of just concentrating on the stuff that people really wanted and liked. I mean, it is funny that the zero, zero, zero vision, like zero deaths, zero traffic, zero emissions, like if you want to get there, then your decisions need to be different. 
and they're not. It's like the same, let's try everything everywhere all at once. And there have been some interesting things like Super Cruise. I always said. It's great. Get it out of Cadillac and put it in every vehicle. Now, from the very beginning. So it's not like everything that has happened is bad and negative. It's just that like the decisions of where they've placed their biggest bet and the most time and resources, I'm like, the first time we all tested Super Cruise, which is at the LA Auto Show, and you had that Cadillac, Alex, and I was like, why would they put this into the one model that no one, like no one's buying this? Like, if you want to beat Tesla, put it at, make it widely available. So there that was just these seven years ago. Yeah, seven I years know. ago. Um, I know. And, wait a second. I'm just looking something up because I want to make sure I'm not crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, you know who was a super smart person uh, and interesting? Who was at GM at Cadillac years ago was Melody Lee. Remember her? Mm-hmm. Had, someone like Melody Lee is the kind of person you'd want to, you'd, you want to have um, rising up the ranks because they're prepared to like think creatively. She's now CMO of Mercedes Benz USA. So that's where GM's talent went. And let me say, I mean, that's a shout out friends, but you know, bright drop, I had some sources at bright drop and bright drop hired one of the, uh, my favorite folks from Argo. Uh, Jessica Solomon, and there are some decent people there. But the very top people, my other sources tell me, were, you know, well, the, he's got, what, didn't the CEO just leave? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Travis Katz. So like the town, like like why doesn't GM GM needs to do a better job of cultivating creative out of out of the box thinkers in house? So when they have a situation like they have a cruise now, they can put them somewhere. They can apply that type of approach because um, putting you know. Com- uh, leadership by committee and bean counting is not going to save Cruz and Cruz is totally savable. Totally savable. Yeah. I think right now they're just trying to study the ship. This feels very interim to me um, back to the cruise situation. It feels very much like, let's just show everyone we are here. We are listening. We are taking action. We are assessing, but we're not just like saying we're assessing. And so they had to put people in place and do some executive shuffling, but I highly doubt that it's going to stay this way. You know, for a year, just, it's going to be, know who you it's going to be get through the end of the year, get through the end of the year, you know, start the year fresh with a plan and all this stuff. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see when the layoffs happen there. Um, I know that there are a lot of people, some people who are like kind of cynical about it and they're like, yeah, I know why they didn't do it over Thanksgiving, but now I feel like I'm in limbo and I'm just kind of like hanging out here waiting for the shoe to drop. Others are like, you know, are hoping everything works out, you know, are trying to be more positive and mission focused. So we'll see what happens. And I, I just want to say too, if we've got this all wrong, if if this all does actually make perfect sense and, and GM is getting traction on, on sort of big long-term you know, goals in, in, uh, in pragmatic ways, you know, Mary Barra, come, come, uh, hang out at the, the Tonicast party at, in Las Vegas at CES in January. Uh, we'd love to, to have you, <laughs> you know, correct. All the us. other CEOs correct and founders go there. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, set us straight. By the way, but we haven't name dropped motional enough, but you know, do you want to talk about a, a company that's got like a really wonderful vehicle for RoboTaxi? The Ionic 5 is cool. In a way, it's maybe, it, I, potentially the best uh, such vehicle out there. We haven't heard a lot from them because they're laying low, like Waymo's laying low, 
until the crew thing plays well, out. They, they did have one little announcement, which is that the vehicle is going to be manufactured in Singapore at that brand new. I saw that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so which factory. is funny because for those who all remember, you know, Carl and his co-founder started Newtonomy and they were the first really, I mean, really – I'll say one of the first, just in case some, I know someone will reach out to me and say, well, actually someone else was, but they were one of the first to, you know, deploy a very tiny pilot, very, you know, geofenced, uh, you know, autonomous vehicle with, I think, believe that there was a human driver behind the wheel, but way early, way early. Um, and so, you know, now I feel like they're full circle bringing that back to Singapore um, in, in terms of on the manufacturing side. So that was like a little fun, um, you know, close and, the loop and, moment. And Carl Yanyem is a good guy. We, people like him. Like talk about like a the type of leader you'd want to have, but they're not going to get snag him. It's just never going to happen. Just I mean, just like Seleski. No, he didn't announce that he'd raised a billion dollars from SoftBank until pretty recently. This whole time, somebody could have called GM, could have called him, be like, "Hey, come in, make you know, make, make nice with Kyle, work this out, and hand the reins." So, yeah. I mean, well, and, and I don't think you can have a company where you have two tech founders and that mindset sharing. Like, I just no, don't but they see missed the wind. If Seleski didn't have hadn't raised the money and was sitting doing something else, he would have been the right guy to move in there. Maybe well, I don't know. I, like, no, this is no offense to Brian. I honestly like. I don't know. Well, let's just hear from, he, you know, I don't think he would have done it. If you're listening <laughs> and you, if, if you, yeah, but if you're listening and you, and you um, work at Cruise, I'm curious, like who would be the person you would want steering the ship with, you know, Kyle not being an option anymore. Yeah. The other I thing would love to hear is from you. we, we recorded episode two weeks ago with Riley Brennan, where we laid out some very clear steps that have to happen to save that company. They're not all the steps, but they're the beginning. And I have not seen any activity on those steps. I've heard a lot of people tell me those are the steps, but no motion. So, well, they stopped all they to, stopped all operations. That was one of your steps. But you that? don't you don't you don't well yeah that's that you don't need that th that's not the step because they can't restart operations until other steps are taken. And there it's community engagement, communications, and marketing. And I don't know if it's a failure of imagination or people have been overruled, but the for all the negative. Um, acts and negative perception. The only solution is a countervailing and equivalent profound and grand series of acts of good faith, transparency, and honesty, not words, deeds as good as the actions or perceived actions were bad. Nothing short of that will work. Yep. I agree. I agree. And, and I think it's been interesting to mention emotional and, and some of these others. I think some of these companies, uh, emotional in particular is, has been, Quiet. Zooks would be another one. It's been quiet. They've got things coming up. I think they have an opportunity to rebrand themselves in a sort of post cruise way, and I think that will be interesting to see. And and the one other thing about about keeping quiet, you know, we actually we discussed uh, 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 remote operation, teleoperation on a recent thing, and we said you know uh, enough companies weren't weren't sort of upfront up about it. Well, one of our one of the companies uh, that does also they tend to keep their heads down, not not super splashy, but does put out good information. Uh, Aurora. They did put out a blog post uh, quite a while ago, sort of outlining some of the what they're doing on um, on teleoperation. It just kind of goes to show this is the tension in this space, right? It's like you're either out there and uh, running nice all the risk, and uh, or you're you're too quiet. And even us who pay such close attention to the space miss 
That's a great topic. We should discuss that next week. Um, Kirsten, may I say one thing about our party before we go? Yes, go for it. The CES party, as usual, is the only party worth attending at at CES. Um, And um, we will be putting up a website um, soon, very soon, within a week or two, uh, with uh, details. And if you want to attend, well, you can – you can you can request to attend. Um, it's going to be much smaller than in prior years because it got too big, and we it's going to be very strict. Um, the sponsors, uh, can we say who we have the sponsor? Already let's wait now? until we, let's, let's hold let's off. Wait on that. Yeah, yeah, we've got some final done. paperwork. We do okay. have a nice group yeah. of of yeah, nice. It's companies. crazy. It's amazing. Um, it's a nice. It's yeah. It's a great group. Nice group. And and I should say, you know, we don't historically haven't done ads and things like that. We basically have used this party, which we did for fun. Um, but it helps us throw the party because uh, costs have gone up. If if uh, inflation is a thing, people. But also, it helps us, um, you know, stay keep recording and things like that. So no one's retiring off of this, but it does allow us to do what I think is one of the most interesting parties of the year and get-togethers of the year. Um, and we call it the anti-CES party just for those who aren't aware because the, the roots of it were really about getting away from what we've all do every year at CES, which is going to these events, these forced networking events with name tags and, and, and just pitches. Um, and what we wanted instead was to bring people together, um, who are building things, who are investing in those things to make sure that those things are built. Um, and just really interesting creatives and put them all in a room and a lot of them know each other and a lot of them don't and just let things, yeah. you know, and before you send us long, long lists of, of people you want to have attend, um, if, unless you're a sponsor, cause that gets you, gets you invitations. Don't send us lists of five, six, 10 people you want to attend. You can come and, uh, well, no you might be able to come. Maybe. <laughs> no bombs, no marketing, no handlers, no exceptions, unless you're a sponsor. And even then, it's going to be tight. All right, I'm done. All right. sponsoring. Okay. You can still email us. Email um, uh, alex at atonicast.com. I'm happy to talk. We will see you in Las Vegas, hopefully. And if not, we will see you here on another episode of the Atonicast. <laughs>